Welcome back, everyone. This is the Mind Body Mentor Podcast. My name is Stephen Jaggers, and I am your host. On today's incredible episode, um, I sit down with Elizabeth Kristoff, who is an implied uh, neurology and somatic practitioner and expert, you know, in, in all things nervous system and trauma. Also, Dr. Matt Bush. Um, he's internationally known instructor of applied neurology, sports science, and high performance coaching. What an incredible conversation I had with these two individuals. Um, I probably could have talked for probably, you know, three, four hours with with uh, each of them. Uh, we nerded out on so much things from you know trauma resolution to behavior change to how that affects mindset and just daily practices, little daily uh, nervous system techniques that are not necessarily breathwork focused, um, but there are many ways to regulate your nervous system and create lasting change uh, within your being. So um, yeah, I know you guys will get so much from this. If you feel called and you want to support the podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify Without further ado, here is the uninterrupted podcast with Elizabeth Kristoff and Dr. Matt Bush. All right, welcome everyone back to the Mind Body Mentor podcast. I am so excited today as I have um, some masters in applied neurology here. Uh, Elizabeth Kristoff, is that how I say your last name? Mm -hmm. Incredible. And, and Matt Bush as well. Um, just having done a little bit of research on your guys' background and having a conversation with you previously, Elizabeth, um, I'm excited for this conversation as we all kind of have a, uh, a movement background um, coming from quite a bottom-up approach of, of uh, uh, sports science and, and physical movement. Um, and then it seems like you guys have, that has kind of led you into wanting a deeper understanding of the nervous system, how trauma affects the nervous system, and then also how that affects our mindset as well. Um, would that be uh, correct in saying that? Yeah, my background is definitely in movement. And I started studying applied neurology um, many years ago in order to improve movement and athletic performance for people. And then through a series of events in my own life and being someone with a pretty high ACE score myself and, and going through a lot of trauma healing modalities for CPTSD, I had this framework of applied neurology that I'd learned for movement. And I understood the nervous system at a pretty deep level from those courses that Matt was my teacher in. And I started to see as I was going through my own healing, man, there's such a broader application for applied neurology beyond just movement and athletic performance that it really touches all areas of our life, our behavior, our relationships, our ability to perform and work, and, and especially in, in rewiring and addressing the way that trauma impacts our nervous system. And so I started trying to see how to integrate that applied neurology framework into those areas, into behavior change, into trauma resolution, and um, have been working for the past few years to do that. And then creating a training program for teachers, for facilitators, for therapists to take this these tools and use them to work with the nervous system directly to create that bottom-up change that you were talking about to mindset and behavior and trauma. And I'll let Matt tell you a little bit more about his background. Yeah, for sure. I got into applied neurology essentially as an athlete and as a coach 
in sports about 2003, 2004. So pretty early in the conversation and um, got into it for my own benefit at first, wanted to improve my movement, get out of pain. Um, you know, I was 22 years old and doctors told me I was just getting old and that's why I was having pain all the time. And I didn't buy that. <laughs> like there's gotta be a better answer when you're 22. Um, so I got into applied neurology uh, and in, in 2014, really 10 years later, uh, I was at a retreat and actually had an emotional flashback in this big traumatic thing that had happened in early childhood that I had completely blocked, like didn't even know it existed, came swooping back into the present moment. Um, and it was, it was shocking. It was scary. Uh, I, I had no idea where this came from or how I had even you know, suppressed it for so long, like what happened here? And that really kind of, that's when I started to turn the corner to look at neurology as a way to implement and work with our mindset and our emotions and that deeper self more so than just movement and athletic performance. And so since 2014, I've really been kind of blending the two, which the deeper you get into it, the more you realize that it's all connected anyway. You know, it's all the nervous system, um, our conscious brain, our subconscious brain, our vagus nerve, like all of the body is the nervous system. You really, we can't separate them the way that we learn it in a textbook. It doesn't really work that way. So it's been a journey to go through like somatic healing, mindset work, daily practices, and really making that real in my life so that then I can turn around and share it with others. I love that. It sounds like you had quite a um, a moment that was a, a catalyst for you to dive deeper. Yeah, for sure. Same, same with you, Elizabeth. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really interested on like if you can give our list listeners just a kind of basic understanding of what applied neurology is, like what it looks like. I know you guys talk about daily practices, but uh, maybe a very, very uh, elementary school sort of explanation. Yeah, happy to. Um, so the way I talk about it is to go applied neurology is different than when you go see a traditional neurologist, right? They're going to do brain scans, uh, like PET scans, CT scans, functional MRIs, like all this imaging stuff. It's very medical. And what they're really look, kind of looking for is a lesion or an area of the brain that they can operate on surgically or something that they can treat medically. And applied neurology is not medical. It's not invasive. It's not surgical. There is no imaging, right? Yeah. But it's a way to really assess and train or retrain the nervous system to have optimal function, like to do its job, right? There's certain things that our nervous system is supposed to be able to do, whether it's from our visual system, our breath, our balance, our hearing, our movement systems, uh, even our, our thoughts and emotions are supposed to function a certain way. Uh, and, and if certain brain areas are not working, we want to go in and try to actually retrain those by doing daily functional practice. So it's like using the concept of neuroplasticity, right? The brain's ability to change and adapt. And we're tapping into that by giving regular frequent inputs or practice of certain neuro-based exercises 
in order to strengthen and support those brain areas that weren't functional when we go through that assessment process. So it's, I tell people it's kind of like personal training for your brain. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, people talk about the term fitness, um, and that could be so many different things. Like, I think we look at that word as like physical fitness. Well, people think that's like working out, but fitness, the definition of that is to become fit at something. Um, and like, what do you want to become fit at? Well, this would be more fitness to become fit in your own nervous system to have resilience and, and, um, and, and control and, and really occupying lots of all the parts of yourself that you probably have not been occupying, or you don't have actual like life force running through that aspects of you. Yeah. There can be deconditioning that occurs. There can be avoidance compensations maladaptations that have happened over the years. And we we're as humans, we're masters at compensating and adapting around those areas and kind of, we're not even aware that they're dysfunctional, but to reconnect them all and to get them working on the same page, uh, is exactly what you're talking about. You're really becoming fit for all areas of life Mm. rather than hindering in one and hyper-specializing in another. It's like all of it raises up together as you get your brain reconnected. I love it. I'm really curious as we sort, you know, my background being um, body work centered um, uh, from more of a, a, a physical Western like injury rehab. I'm a neuromuscular therapist. Um, and then also studying a lot of like energetic uh, cranial sacral therapy, polarity therapy, um, and then some of the somatic approaches to body work really we've seen such a spike in uh, interest around somatic practices and, and, and um, this understanding of trauma, um, you know, within the last five years, but really within like the last year, it has been a substantial increase. Why do you guys think that is? Oh, well, I think one of the things that has happened is I think there's just a a greater awareness um, in a collective consciousness that I think is, I think that as people experience their trauma and it goes on unresolved, it tends to get worse. You know, what we do, we get better at. And so I think that as also too, that trauma continues on from generation to generation, it leads to outputs of the nervous system that are pretty severe and pretty intense. And it's often those intense outputs that push us into seeking new modalities of healing that can be a real catalyst for awakening and and trying to explore different things. And I think that on a large scale, and there's a number of reasons probably why this is maybe trauma past generation to generation. Maybe our society continues to be structured in a way that's really dysregulating to our nervous systems, but there's a lot of people experiencing really severe outputs of their nervous system, mental health issues, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, all these things that don't have a quick and easy fix from a traditional standpoint. And so I think that has opened up people to exploring a lot of different and new modalities. And as more and more people have done that, there there has been a greater understanding and it's kind of fed on itself as more people talk about it and put that information out into the world that we are, we are 
organic whole connected system and that the nervous system and the body play a huge role in our mental health and that our mental health plays a huge role in our physical health. And there's just a, a growing awareness that continues as people, but like, you know, how Matt and I both talked about, we had these big moments of something uh, was enough to make us reevaluate and take a deeper look at these systems. Um, and as more and more people experience that in their own life, I think the conversation grows about what's at the root of all of this and looking at stress and looking at the nervous system and looking at the body. I love that. Yeah. I think that people, um, especially a lot of us in the helping professions, um, we start off our journey really wanting to help people. And I think a lot of, um, especially the structure in which schooling is set up, uh, it kind of um, uh, compartmentalizes us in a way where we only have certain tools and how we can work with people. And then we, we start to hit that ceiling of how, you know, how much we're able to actually re really help people. And so I think that there was a striving within all of us to go deeper. Let's look at it on a, from a deeper level. Let's actually really help people. And I think that one of the things you said that I, I, I just become more and more aware of is this sort of idea of um, a lot of these uh, experiences, um, pathologies or diagnoses, we can call them um, for lack of a better term, uh, are sort of mismatched diseases in a way where um, they're a very normal response to an abnormal environment. You know, like a lot of our mental health um, our nervous system dysregulation. It's, it's a very normal response to these abnormal situations that our world is set up in a way. Like, you know, I use the example just on a physical level, like my body sitting in this chair, like it's very, it's a very normal response for me to develop tension in my hips um, from sitting in this chair because my body is not designed for this chair. And so I think that where my mind goes is like, okay, well, how do we go back to where, what our nervous systems have been evolved to do and thrive and handle, but we actually can't go back. We have to go forward. And the world is necessary, like changing the full societal structure of our world um, seems like quite a daunting task. The amount of certain systems that would have to be kind of uh, destroyed uh, completely, really, um, seems like a daunting task. And I think that that's where you know, stuff like um, uh, neurosomatic intelligence and applied neurology and somatic experiencing and somatic breath work, these are all attempts to give people tools and resources to move forward into the world, knowing that we have a lot of um, uh, environments that are very taxing on our system, um, but also giving us like tools to be able to um, uh, handle and, and evolve. Cause I th think we do have an opportunity. Like I'll, I do look at trauma and stress as it is sort of the number one, um, killer, if you will, the number one thing that, that, that really is a detriment to our system and, and, and creates a lot of these dysfunctions where we can't fight things off and, and we're not able to repair as healthy or as, as, well as we'd like to, but at the same time, it also creates growth. 
And so I think we do have an opportunity, like looking at it as an opportunity to how do we move forward? And also with the amount of stress, with the amount of trauma, with the amount of societal, like abnormal environment for our system, like we do have an opportunity to grow personally and collectively as well. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that you were saying that really, it's these foundational components of our nervous system our breath, our vision, our balance system that are often getting very disrupted by the way that our society is structured, just the lack of movement, maybe the lack of social connection, um, all these different things that can impact, you know, the way our postures are becoming habitually that impacts our respiration. And so a lot of what we teach in the course is, is looking at this really foundational level of these different input systems of the nervous system and make sure that you're giving people the tools to do all these basic things very well so that their nervous system is under less stress on a second by second basis because people don't want to completely break out of the society that we live in and we want to adapt and be able to be resilient in the world that is and so how do we train the respiration how do we train the, the different input systems to align so that we're not getting different signals from different input systems so that all these things are not creating constant stress on a second by second basis, because yeah, we need some stress for adaptation. We need some stress for evolution, but when it goes to that chronic stress level of these constant deficits in the nervous system, adding stress all of the time, it becomes really dangerous. And that's when you get disease and that's when you get mental health collapse. And so making sure that as practitioners, we have the tools to help people build a solid foundation of, of safety and functioning in their nervous system. And then on top of that, emotional processing becomes possible. Behavior change becomes possible. New relationships become possible, but we have to make sure that we have that, that foundation there first, I think. Matt, you want to? Yeah. One, like there's a couple of thoughts here that I want to pull together with what you guys are talking about that we're all familiar with eustress and distress right? And we need stress to be able to adapt. And what neuroscience shows us is that our human nervous system is always adapting to stimulus literally until the day that we die. It never stops, right? Neuroplasticity is always in action. And so I think, Elizabeth, you mentioned resilience, and that's one of the keys that we want to actually create or, or recreate in the human body by doing neuro practices or somatic practices, because it's our ability to handle some level of distress with resilience that will allow us to adapt in a healthy way rather than going into maladaptations, right? And unhealthy adaptations that are going to create that disease process, the inflammatory process, the avoidance behaviors. And so going back to where even started, it's like the trauma is like the shackles that hold us back, right? It's usually from our past. Trauma from the past is showing up in the present and it's preventing us from moving into the future or even the present moment, I guess, that we want from our desired outcome. So these neuro practices that we've all created and we participate in ourselves and we share with others are all different ways to remove the shackles to get us out of that feeling of being bound by our past trauma so we can move into a greater state of resilience and a greater state of 
creating the healthy life that we really want or where we really thrive. Um, so I love how what you guys both said really combines in a beautiful way. Um, and the word that comes to mind, I know you're kind of an etymology guy. <laughs> the word that comes to mind is recreation, like to recreate, right? To recreate life, that life energy that you talked about a few minutes ago. But from a, from a classical definition, recreation is like a leisure activity, right? But how many leisure activities do I get to participate in if I'm constantly relieving my trauma and I'm bound and shackled by our survival mentality or a scarcity mindset or avoidance behaviors? There isn't any leisure because I'm always feeling like I'm in danger. I'm always feeling like I have to just survive the moment. So to be able to drop that stuff and get out from under the burden of all of that to be able to participate in, in true recreation and recreating how healthy, thriving life energy. I think that's the goal of what all of us are kind of doing. I love that. Um, yeah. Thanks for the etymology. I always nerd out on that. Um, yeah. The, the, I almost look at it as like, well, we are domesticated creatures. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and that is uh that is, I think, I remember reading something about the only sort of creatures that we we start to see degenerative diseases in are domesticated, um, and so we are uh, we 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 have kind of set up almost like a zoo for ourselves. And I look at my just my room here as like my uh, environment or my little zoo for, for me as an animal, right? Cause I am an animal. And I think that's a, a, a big thing that people are missing or, is that we are animals and we have certain animalistic processes that you cannot bypass. Um, and our environment and, and recreating um, certain scenarios, like I have these rings over here that I, I, um, I try to, any, anytime I walk past them, I try to just hang from them to like, you know, mimic some sort of brachiation in my body because I'm sitting at this chair all the time. Right. Um, so that leads me into one of the topics that I hear you guys talk about, um, that I've heard you guys talk about on other podcasts, um, that I'm very interested in is, is, uh, I know you guys bring up some some of the aspects that you guys feel that are missing within a lot of these so, sort of somatic modalities, if you will, um, if we can maybe go into that a little bit, what are some of the things that you feel like um, you've seen with these different modalities that, that, that are somatic uh, based that are a missing certain aspect? Yeah, I think it's a great question and it's really important um, because I, 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 love somatic work. I'm deeply influenced by it. And I think it's incredibly valuable. We have to be able to let our bodies express emotions and to release the stored energy. And a couple of things about that. We are returning back into our um, domesticated world, right? So we have these big experiences, but we're going back into our, our normal world. And we are maybe entering in, in a pretty dysregulated state for whatever reason, from deficits in our nervous system. And um, sometimes the capacity and the bandwidth that I see people have to, to process those emotions and to have those experiences 
sometimes the experience exceeds the actual capacity in their nervous system to handle it. You know, big emotions are really scary and we learn at an early age, um, especially if we have complex trauma, that it's very, very dangerous to feel and to express those emotions. And so there was a lot of times for me where I would go through somatic therapy or a somatic experience and I would have a big emotional release. And afterwards, my body would react pretty violently. I would get a rash all over. My joints would become inflamed. I would have chronic pain. Uh, it wasn't safe yet. And I have a pretty high A score. I have an A score of six. And so that makes me especially sensitive to some of this stuff. And as someone with complex PTSD, I had to kind of take a step back from some of that. And that was frustrating and sad because I also wanted it. I wanted to be able to express those emotions. I wanted to be embodied. I wanted to move out of dissociation and it just wasn't safe for my body. And I, that's when I really started to think I've got to work more practically with my nervous system around these experiences. I have to use my tools. I have to use the tools that I've been studying for the past decade to help me with regulation around these experiences. So before a somatic experience, doing giving my system a lot of input, a lot of stimulus that it responds well to, training my eyes, giving my vestibular system some stimulus, my body mapping system, my balance system, and and then going in, in a, in a better place into the experience so that there was more room in my bucket to handle the stress of that. And then continuously after the process, re-regulating myself, re, re-bringing myself out of the, the dysregulated state that maybe I got thrust into the emotional flashback or the, um, even the physical states that I would sometimes come out of and like my posture would change my, the function of my eyes would change afterwards. And so I had to work with my body and my nervous system to keep creating that safety around those. And then really starting to look at the right dosage for me so that I could apply it little by little and give myself a lot of tools and a lot of support working with the nervous system around it so that that could become possible so that it could become safe for me to do that because I, I want those practices, but I also don't want to push myself into disease by doing too much, too fast, too soon for my nervous system. You want to expand on that, Matt? Sure. Um, my thoughts don't come as much from personal experience as just from the position of trying to help people learn and understand how to do neurology within the context of kind of somatic healing. Um, and right at the end of what Elizabeth said, she, she touched on dosage. And I think it's very important to understand that dosage is always going to be individual. There is no one size fits all when it comes to the nervous system. Yeah. So what works for you may be way too much for me or for Elizabeth, or it might not be enough. And the, what we know from neurotraining and applied neurology is the nervous system essentially follows the rules guidelines maybe of minimal effective dose, right? Which we've all heard of from like pharmaceutical medications, right? It's like take the minimum amount of the medication to get the intended result. If you don't take enough, nothing's really going to happen. If you take too much, right? I, I tell my clients, there's no such thing as side effects. There's just effects of pharmaceutical medications. And if you take enough of the medication, you're going to get all of the effects including stomach ulcers and 
you know, all kinds of nasty stuff that we don't even want to think about. So our nervous system, the, the way it perceives this stress placed upon it, or we could even think of it as like stimulus that's placed upon it, is that it wants to adapt to it. That's why we're doing the stimulus in the first place. That's why we're giving it the inputs. But it also kind of is a predictive organism. And so as it's perceiving the inputs that are coming in through uh, a training or a therapeutic modality or some kind of practice, it's predicting that if the stressor that's being placed on the system becomes too great, it's not going to be able to adapt to the stressor anymore. The stressor is actually going to become the problem. And it goes, if that happens, I'm going to have a full-blown fight or flight response. Like I'm going to be in a life or death situation, right? Um, and and our, it's like trying to protect us. It's on our team, but it sometimes it's a little overactive. So we're engaging in behaviors or therapies or, or training practices. Our nervous system is going, well, we're getting a little close to the edge here. Things are going to go badly. And then it starts to give up these, these protective mechanisms, like maybe physical pain, uh, dizziness, anxiety, fatigue, um, depression, like flip side of the coin from anxiety, um, all kinds of stuff that it can actually create as a way to slow us down or make us stop what we're doing. And if we're not paying attention to those signals and, and, and listening to those outputs from the nervous system, we just blow right by them or push right through them. Then we're going into an, a state or an area where the nervous system can no longer adapt to the training stimulus, but now it's just protecting itself, like curling up in a little ball or rebelling against it because it doesn't think that it can handle the input any longer. Yeah. It's creating more, more defense systems, right? Um, yeah. Instead of with the intention and, you know, sort of that, I think all uh, doctors or medical professionals take the sort of Hippocratic oath, which is like, right. thou shall do no harm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is, I think that most of us come from a well-intentioned place. We probably don't have the awareness around um, when it yeah. actually is doing more harm. For sure. Yeah. And I think there needs to be an actual assessment process to be able to tell. So like in, in neurosomatic intelligence, we do an assessment to check in on the nervous system and essentially ask the question, where's your current threat level? Is it like if we got a green, yellow and red zone here, right? Is threat in the green and we can proceed? Is it yellow and we need to be cautious or is threat already in the red zone and we need to back off before we start to engage these protective mechanisms? And after each training tool that we apply, will reassess that threat level. So in this training, there's always kind of two levels that we're looking at the, the individual that we're working with at their nervous system. We're going, number one, are they able to perform the task that we're asking them to do during the training? Like, it's not as simple as pass fail, but you can kind of think of it that way. Like, can you do what we ask you to do or what you're trying to attempt? Second level is, now that you've tried that, how does your nervous system's perception of threat respond? Did that training exercise lower your threat? So now your system is feeling more safe and more capable of engagement, 
or did it actually increase your threat because it was too much on the dosage side? So your nervous system is now backing away slowly, unwilling to engage in further training. And if, if we just push, 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 and we ignore those things, we don't get the positive results we're looking for. You're exactly right when you say it actually creates bigger problems. Yeah. One of the things that um, I try to drive home, I think with somatic breath work that I think a lot of probably other breath work modalities don't really um, cover. And I've seen um, where it takes on the sort of one size fits all is that I encourage everyone to kind of find their own rhythm as far as when they start sort of the respiration cycles find your own rhythm because if when i I've, I've seen other breathwork modalities where they almost like are counting and they have everyone do the same rhythm well uh you know a, a, a level 10 for me might be a level 20 for the person that's next to me might be a level three for the person that's next to them so i encourage everyone to kind of find their own rhythm and then maybe raise it like 10 percent from there just so we're kind of pushing the threshold just a little bit. Um, but I, 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 and before I start to work on anyone, whether it's sort of more of a group session or a one-on-one -on -one session, I have everyone kind of find their own rhythm. That way I know where kind of their baseline is. That way I know I'm not like taking them 20, 30, 40, 50% past that and kind of pushing that threshold. Um, and another thing that like uh, uh, people I don't, know if they understand um, that somatic breath work is not necessarily designed to be a daily practice. Um, it isn't a daily practice because we are, um, especially the traditional like longer session, it is more of sort of an, uh, uh, an intervention practice that I would say is maybe once a month needed um, or not needed, but probably once a month, like is good for your system because we are putting it uh, a, a little bit more pressure. It is kind of a hard reset to the nervous system. It's not something people need to do every day. And I get people that want to do it every day. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think you're getting the, the point here. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is designed to kind of take your system into a stress state, which gives your physiology an opportunity to discharge. Um, and then after that, like how, after that discharge, like how quickly, or can we take you back into a regulated state after you've had that and, and like training elongated exhales and really like showing when you get into that sort of stress nervous system state, like, and you have a safe space to discharge and then like showing the system how to come back into a regulated state, um, obviously within a, a container and, and within having trained practitioners around you. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't know if everyone kind of understands that. I don't know if I've talked to you Matt, specifically about that. It's, it's tough to understand at first because that re-regulation, metaphorically speaking, that's like a muscle that you can train, right? It's a skill. You can get better at re-regulating you can get worse at re-regulating. And so when people don't have the tools to know how to re-regulate the physical side of the nervous system, sometimes they can feel a little lost because when the nervous system is in this dysregulated hyper survival state, your cognitive brain doesn't have a lot of influence over your survival brain rhythms and patterns. 
It's like your survival brain kind of stops listening and it's running the show. Um, and the terminology we use for that is called amygdala hijacking or limbic escape. But what going back to those tools, what's really important, and I guess this actually answers your previous question too. What's really important is for everyone to understand that there are more ways to influence and train the nervous system than just utilizing uh, neural tools that focus on the neck down. And what I mean by that is that most nervous system training modalities, whether we're talking uh, like athletic neuro training, pain relief training, somatic training, most of them focus on either proprioception, which is the sense of sensory and motor control of the body, like where is the body in space and what am I feeling, or respiration. Those are the two major tools. And like uh, what you just said about somatic breath work of bringing someone to a point where they're able to discharge extreme, there's extreme value right there of letting those emotions release. But then to put Humpty Dumpty back together, we can use the visual system. We can use the vestibular system. We can use uh, the auditory system. We can use smell, the olfactory system. We can use other cranial nerves. We can activate other brain areas like the brainstem or the cerebellum um, or certain parts of the frontal lobe. And it's, I think it's very important to understand there's more parts to the nervous system that can be used in, in that re-regulation phase than just proprioception and breath work. Like your, a lot of your nervous system lives above the neck. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm <laughs> literally, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I think from what I've seen of your work, I think you incorporate some of those things. But in a lot of systems that I've looked at, there's just kind of this big gap. And it's like, well, you know, there's other ways to help that person regulate more quickly or more effectively. And a lot of people, I don't, I certainly don't think it's intentional. I think people just don't know. We haven't been taught in our culture or in our schools of just how powerful and effective neural work can be. Yeah. I would love to get into that topic is, um, and I, and I definitely had that question written down. Um, but one thing that I've found so fascinating, and I think that I might've talked to Elizabeth about this or, or, and you also just mentioned about wanting to be able to like have that sort of discharge, wanting to be able to like feel those emotions. Um, something that I saw early on as far as the like social media aspect of this and getting this sort of message out into the world. Um, and it kind of shattered my paradigm a little bit, uh, was, I never wanted to sort of showcase um, like publicly those sorts of emotional releases. Um, And I hired a a social media manager and she was like, well, you should probably show like what, like, even though that's only one facet. Right. (laughs) um, And it became the facet that kind of was really, um, it had the sort of clickbait uh, or uh, uh, a flashy, like really captivating um, aspect to it. I never really wanted to showcase that. And then we posted one video of someone having uh, an, an emotional release. And then 
also there's other aspects in there of where there's another person there um, kind of holding space for them and uh, being with them in a very responsible way. Uh, we had thousands of messages come through like, and it just skyrocketed um, the amount of engagement and, and really globally too, not just in the States. We had thousands of messages come in from other uh, in other languages and myself and my business partner, um, fish, we were sitting on Google translate, trying to translate all these messages, <laughs> yeah. um, because it was a, it was a very global thing. And it's interesting how many people actually want that, where we look in our world is like feeling these emotions and having those sort of discharges, like as a negative thing, if you will, I'd say that's kind of the societal norm. Um, but then realizing like how many people actually crave that actually want that deeply. And I get so many messages, how can I do this? Like I want to, and I don't know if that's an aspect of just a, a reflection of how sort of numb or suppressed our world is um, and how many people actually want to feel because feeling I would say is equating to like being alive <laughs> um, and feeling alive. Uh, but it was a very interesting phenomenon that, I think only captures one aspect of, of the work that we do, but also it is beyond me just sitting there teaching and speaking in English, like uh, emotions are a very global language. Um, and it seems like the world is really like really wanting it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really important part of the human experience. And as we numb our capacity to experience grief or or live out our anger, we also numb out our joy and our connection and our pleasure and everything becomes kind of flatlined. And as living beings, we have a, a deep desire to experience that and to be alive. And I think at the same time, like in my cognitive mind, I got to a place in my healing where I knew I knew I was very dissociated. I knew that I wanted to be able to experience emotions and I had a lot of behaviors, avoidance behaviors or maladaptive behaviors that I was using to suppress my emotions that I wanted to move out of binge eating, numbing out on social media, just crashing at the end of the day. And cognitively, I knew I wanted to move out of that. I understood the beauty and the importance of emotions. And at the same time, at the level of my survival brain, as a young child, there was a lot of things that were very scary about expressing emotions. You know, I grew up in a really stressful environment. I also grew up with a single mother who was under a heavy stress load all of the time. So if I expressed a lot and added stress to her plate, I, as I think as a little being could feel her dissociation and her overwhelm and her nervous system. And that led me to feeling abandoned at the moment. So when I fully express my emotions, it leads to abandonment and it challenges all these attachment bonds and it possibly leads to being punished or rejected from the herd. There's just so much at a deep survival level that feels threatening about allowing that to be expressed. And so I think that is where having a daily practice of working with the nervous system to 
increase capacity, to increase resilience can make this so beneficial that these practices go really well hand in hand. Because the more I worked with my nervous system to heal my deficits, like my visual system, my balance system, I know where my body is in space. I'm under less stress on a second by second basis. And then I also have these rescue tools that I can use when I'm feeling dysregulated. Now I have the capacity to start to cry in front of other people, to start to allow myself to rage and not have the pushback from my body and my protective outputs that feel like that is threatening. And so I, I deeply believe in the beauty and the life-giving importance of practices like your breath work to help people express those emotions and I believe that using the NSI tools, using you know applied neurology in conjunction with that, it makes it possible. It makes it possible for more people to be able to get that experience without facing protective outputs of a survival brain, of an old brain that feels threatened by that. So that then when we leave, we don't have to then, oh, now I have a migraine or I'm experiencing pain or I'm shutting down or all of a sudden I'm dissociated or I'm in an emotional flashback. I don't want to have to do that every time I express emotions. And so what are practical ways I can work with my system to make it possible to have that expansion that I want? You want to expand, Matt, or I can? Well, I think Elizabeth and I have talked about this on some other podcasts we've done where our, we need to be able to express. And she kind of just alluded to that. Like as humans, we know if we bottle those emotions and sit on it, it's going to show up somewhere in the body, right? It's going to turn into inflammation, cancer, disease, and our physical body is not going to be able to hold the epicness of our emotional feelings. Like it just can't hold them inside. And so I think it's vitally important that we can express. I think to, to go back to your original question, we, I think we seek that. Um, I mean, I did stalk you a little bit before the podcast. I looked at those social media posts and I, I actually noticed the number of international comments. Yeah. Like that was surprising. It's like, whoa. But I think emotion is very much an international language, right? That is how wherever you are, whatever spoken language you utilize, the emotion is still there. And um, I just think, yeah, it's discouraged in our society to really express. It's unsafe for a lot of people. And I think potentially, I, I would suspect that part of the reaction that you received to that social media posting was because of the environment and the support that you also demonstrated in the same clip, that this is actually a safe space, right? I think that's what's missing. It's like to, to really go through a transformational change we can't do that when we don't have emotional support and space from those around us or from our environment. Our nervous system is not going to engage. If it feels the environment is unsafe or that the audience is unsafe, we're not going to show people our the chinks in our armor. We're not going to be vulnerable. We're not going to transform because that's really about recreating who we are. And it has to be done in a safe, supportive place where there's space to experience, kind of to shatter. If you want to talk about like shattering ego or shattering identity a little bit that comes with that trauma and then leaving that 
like leaving that in the space and then be able to reintegrate and re-regulate as you go back into your life and your family and your social circle. So you showing that it's actually safe to do so and that another human being can responsibly hold space for you to allow you to release, man, how attractive is that in the world that we currently live and exist in, right? You don't find that anywhere else. Yeah, we don't, we don't find that anywhere else. And, and man, I have so many directions. I want to take that. (laughs) Um, The ego is something that I'm really fascinated with as well. uh, Especially when it comes to looking at it as kind of an ego death at some, sometimes, you know, like having this sort of a peak experience that might um, cause you to integrate certain aspects of yourself or, or um, maybe shatter some parts of yourself. And, and I do, you know, I don't know whose book it is. It might be Ryan holiday. That's like uh, um, uh, kill the ego or, or the the ego is your enemy. And uh, I think that that is an issue that I currently see time and time again with um, especially practitioners, I would say clients as well, but teaching practitioners that have a hard time putting themselves out there in their own unique expression. Like, just like, uh, um, well, you look at life, like every plant in this room or every, every plant outside, they all have their own unique expression, right? Everyone has their own unique expression. Um, there are no two same snowflakes. Like, and I also think about, you know, learning like from Paul Stamets, who's like a mycologist where it's like biodiversity creates biosecurity. And then looking at the body is from a movement standpoint, like movement diversity uh, creates movement security. Right. Um, And then, and then also like unique expression from an ego standpoint as a human, like everyone has their own unique expression. Like that creates biosecurity in a way as well. Like, everyone, I think everyone thrive or craves, uh, to find their own unique expression, their own like healthy expression of their ego. Whereas trauma, I think that it's not killing the ego that needs to happen. It's like a a release of the, the traumatic defense systems or the traumatic responses that have been the thing that's driving your, your, your ego and your expression in the world versus everyone kind of everyone craves to have their own unique artistic expression and to be like seen and heard for from that in the world especially nowadays when it comes to putting yourself out there on like social media and and in community and like podcasts and all of these different aspects like I see that time and time again where people have a hard time um and and a lot of self-worth issues um, a lot of inner critic stuff comes up, you know, um, and not being like just comfortable in their own unique expression. I think sometimes what happens is we get a, a big peak emotional moment and a big release. Um, but then when we get back to the real world and we experience similar triggers, our nervous system, we, we may have let, in, in fact, we may have let go of the original or the core of that trauma and let it release, but we still have the trained behaviors that we've been using year after year after year that we've habituated in response to the trigger. 
that's actually kind of separate from the actual trauma itself. And so like the, the behavioral retraining that has to occur and the, the shifting of ego and self-identity that all has to be trained over a period of time after that release occurs. And so sometimes it is a little difficult when you've been to uh, an event or uh, like a retreat or something, and you have the emotional experience, you do the release and then you get back home. And that first time that trigger hits, you're like, Oh, why is this happening? You know, I thought I'd let this go, but it's a process. Obviously it's a journey. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's so important and it's, it's not sexy. Right. I think that a lot of people, yeah, it's see not these, these very bottom up, very cathartic emotional releases happen. And it's like, Ooh, I want that. You know, and it's like, it's, it's, um, it's very, uh, it has shock value where it's like, I try to remind all my students and, and, and clients that yes, that like the pendulum has swung to, uh, um, really needing to address things from that bottom up approach. But I would say that the, I look at the top-down approach is like those daily behavioral patterns, those daily choices, right? And those are almost even more important because you can have that release. And then if you don't have that sort of, because the mind can change quickly, right? Body changes slowly. Bodies of nature, the mind changes quickly. So repetitive choosing, repetitive like practices are just as important, if not probably they're both important, but more important, especially after some sort of like peak moment like that. Yeah. I think it can be frustrating for people because you have these expectations and yet you, you have to work at the speed of the nervous system and and trauma initially itself is too much, too fast, too soon, right? Like it's an overwhelming of the system. And so there's a certain amount of, of patience required with, with repatterning and doing those daily practices that just like you said, it's not sexy. Um, but it does sort of exponentially build on itself. Like as I train my nervous system, I can handle more capacity. I can handle more stimulus and then I can handle more stimulus. So as I, as I work with the nervous system, that healing, it will, the process will speed up and I'll be able to take on more, the healthier my nervous system gets. And then as I'm able to take on more stimulus, the adaptations occur at a, at a deeper, faster level. And and you can build from there. And then, you know, things like the daily things of self-expression, getting on a podcast, making yourself visible on social media, because I I do believe like self-expression is that's the mountaintop, right? Like that's the full lived experience is being fully self-expressed. And I, I believe like Matt was talking about too, trauma is these, these shackles that hold us back from, you know, whether it's from the inner critic or self-abandonment or all the other things that accompany um, trauma. It's, it's those patterns that get triggered over and over again and make it impossible for us to to fully self-express in the world that in the world in the way that we want. And when we can work with our system intentionally, gradually over time, do something, re-regulate, do something, repattern, experience the same trigger, and give our system different input, over time it becomes possible. And then we can build on that until that is more of the norm. And the emotional flashbacks and the inner critic and the self-abandonment is the every once in a while and the 
living fully self-expressed and being comfortable in my skin and interacting in the world the way that I want is, is more of the day-to-day baseline way that I operate in the world. I love that so much. And and I know people are going to really appreciate this podcast because that's probably one of the biggest things that I hear time and time again is that people have this profound uh, experience and maybe I work with them for a while and then they go back and then, well, my mom's still treating me the same way. My dad's still treating me the same way. You know, my partner is still uh, keeping me in this sort of box, right? And then having those those daily, uh, just daily patterns to really support um, the insight, right? And that's something that I continue to to get asked on is like, I guess, I could be considered integration. Integration is such an interesting concept. And I continue to sit with that. Um, because even from like, Peter Levine's uh, approach, and I would say his kind of definition of integration is actually just the healing moment. Like it's the, it's actually the integration is like, when you're having that moment, and you're integrating parts of yourself, or, you know, you're reconnecting all of the parts of yourself. And then I think in our world, we look at integration as like, okay, I'm going back into the world. And I'm like, living my dream life. And I'm like, you know, I'm taking the insights from this experience. And now I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm applying it um, day to day. And I'm like, I'm fully integrated, right? Which is, I think it needs kind of a redefinition in a way. And I think that what people are asking for is to have like, if, if that's the definition of integration and people are wanting that, it's like they almost want like a, a mommy or daddy there all the time that are holding them accountable like every day. And and I, part of me is wanting to say like, I actually don't do that sort of integration for you. Um, like nobody can integrate for you. And so you can learn the tools and techniques, um, but that is a self, that is a self journey and no one can do that for you. I'm curious what totally, your thoughts are on that. Totally agree with that. Um, your nervous system is your own. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, the reason we share this stuff is I, I've always said, everyone has a nervous system. They need to learn how to use it. <laughs> like there isn't, there isn't a user's manual, right, for how your brain works or how to learn those actual ongoing processes. So I think it's vitally important that we talk about these things and start to share Absolutely. And that, that goes into a question that I wanted to talk about earlier is that like, we're not given an instructor's manual and on, on our body, on our nervous system, on our kinesiology, on our physiology, maybe we take a few classes in like high school or college. I know for me, um, and I almost like, especially some of the beginning parts of somatic breath work, I almost wanted to like change it to, to just like how to human one oh one oh one. I'm sure you guys yeah. probably feel the same about your course. It's like how to human. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I, the quote that comes up is like, and I don't know how much I agree with this. I just kind of sit in, in, in contemplation with it, but it's, it's easier to um, raise a child, right. than it is to fix a broken man, right. A broken adult. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there are some truths to that. And really it begs the the bigger question is that like the youth is our future. 
what would it look like if our education system or our societal traditions and patterns like had these sorts of understandings like weaved in on a societal level and like what are some of the most important parts maybe um that would because i get a lot of parents that come through uh somatic breath work and they don't even want to like utilize this in their um, from a, a clinical standpoint or from like a coaching or, or a practitioner standpoint um, they just want to go through it and they want to be able to apply it like with their kids um, which is so so powerful and I didn't really have the intention of that but I've seen that more and more how it's affecting just like family life and how they hold how they relate and co-regulate with their children yeah, I think that's beautiful. And one of the things that I would love is is to have this information get out to to more young people and to have under our nervous system is our operating system, right? And and we don't have an understanding of how it works. And we are all really doing the best that we can at the level of our operating system. And our behaviors reflect that, our relationships reflect that, like our lived experience experience is a reflection of our nervous system function. And, and yet we're not taught about any of this. And there's really simple stuff that people could be doing, training their vision. They could be, you know, practicing all of their visual skills, doing smooth pursuits or saccades or, um, you know, just shifting their focus to far away while they're walking so that they're not always looking at something that's only 13 inches away from their face so that the system stays healthy and functional and is able to perform all the skills that it's supposed to be able to. And if people just did that regularly, they would feel dramatically different because the visual system is so important to our nervous system and to our felt sense of being safe and being able to make predictions and moving through the world with accuracy. And, and yet people don't know that. And they think their vision just has to deteriorate as they get older. And it's just this sort of accepted truth, but it's not true. And so, you know, just little things like that, that could make such a huge difference if people had those practices, almost like a, a nervous system hygiene practice, like you brush your teeth, you do your vision exercises, you train your respiration, you, these kinds of things. It doesn't have to be so complicated. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I know we'll, we'll, we'll start to, we'll start to put a bow on this. Um, but I was just spending two weeks in Sedona, uh, where I lived for probably two and a half years and um, especially living in sort of a polar opposite. I've lived downtown Austin right now um, and hiking in Sedona, which I used to hike almost every day. And I used to be on a different mountaintop every day and I could see for miles um, and different, just uh, yeah, different peaks in the distance and, and everything is sort of the geometry of nature and not building structure. And, and I just realizing like, wow, how, how important that was for my system and and it also was a mirror of how like my vision has it's just living here and being in front of a computer screen has uh, and and also only being able to see the next building next to me like how much of a toll even only six months how much of a toll that's taken on my vision and like being out there realizing like whoa how dysregulated and how much like my nervous system is just buzzing at like this high rate. It took me like two or three days to just like bring it back down. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it was, it was a profound, 
realization. And I didn't even realize it uh, until I went back there, right? Because it was just a part of my day-to-day routine. Mm -hmm. I'm back in Arizona. It's great over here. Are you in Arizona, Matt? Yeah, I live in Phoenix. Cool. Yeah, I actually grew up in Phoenix. Um, Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I lived there for most of my life, so I love the desert. The desert is such a mas- magical place, um, and I, I love northern Arizona. I'm, I'm actually yeah. going to be probably, that will be my home at some point, either flag or, or uh, snow, yeah. just because that, that land's so special to me. Well, it's absolutely an honor. Uh, uh, I could continue to just ask you guys questions. Um, I think a good place to probably wrap this up at is maybe if you guys can give us a little bit of information on uh, the, the neurosomatic intelligence certification, um, what the what the program is, when it starts, and uh, maybe who it's, who it's for. Yeah, wonderful. So our next training, our next course runs March 30th will be the start date and we'll be enrolling people all of next year. And um, it's a three month program. It's ICF accredited. Um, So for coaches, for therapists, for healers of all different types of modalities, it's a really practical framework to arm you with some actionable tools to work with the nervous system to to help you identify the deficits in your client's nervous system and give them tools that they can use to improve their nervous system health. And then to make the other modalities that you're practicing more, more potent, more beneficial. And so it goes through a lot of different aspects of neurology, looking at the neurology of different trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. It looks at the neurology of anxiety and emotional flashbacks and insomnia, and then helps you understand at a very deep level what's happening at the nervous system. And then what are these practical tools that you can use to work with your clients to help them move out of these responses and behaviors and to also just train their nervous system to be more resilient so that they have a greater capacity for mindset change, for trauma resolution, for emotional expression, and and from all of the different practices that people have. Love it. You want to add anything, Matt? Um, Just that one of the most kind of beautiful things that's happened during this first round of the certification is we've had so many of the participants find further levels of healing for themselves that obviously it's pretty common that those who get into somatic healing and trauma recovery have been there, right? And they're seeking. And so just the amount of change that we've seen in the participants in their own lives has been pretty incredible considering that they're already in the industry, they've already been practicing, they're already trained, and yet they're still finding levels of regulation from using these tools that are really changing their lives. So it it applies to the participant as well as to training someone in order to work with clients. I love that. And I definitely see that so much within, within our, our trainings as well. It's uh, I think that most people um, they get into this, just like you said, because they have some of their own stuff that they've been able to work through and, and, uh, and that allows them to work with others. Um, but you gotta yeah. do work for yourself first. Right. 
Well, I, I appreciate you both so much. I, I appreciate your grounded, practical approach to things and, and just uh, the, um, uh, the simplistic language you guys put around things. I think it makes it very accessible and, and uh, I'm excited to uh, see where it goes. Have you guys had any practitioners from somatic breathwork that you know of? Uh, I have had, we have one breathwork practitioner in there. We have some plant medicine facilitators and we have um, some somatic therapists that are in the program. And um, I've also done, I've brought some of the NSI tools um, to an, a breathwork facilitator who does trainings and, and worked with some of her people as well. And um, yeah, I think the neatest thing, like Matt was saying, is, is seeing how it impacts the practitioners themselves and yeah. then their capacity to be a safer, more regulated space for their clients in, yeah. you know, for the people that they're serving. It's really made a huge impact in that way. Mm. Yeah. I say that all the time is that the, the, the breath is just the driving force, right? It's not the actual modality. It's the practitioner's ability to attune and create a safe place and, and create rapport um, with another human. Um, that's where the real magic is. That's where the real potency is. And that's where the work with your own nervous system comes in so important. So yeah, I, uh, I can't stress to um, if you are a practitioner, if you are a healer facilitator of any sort, working with the mind or body, working with another human, it's so important to continue to increase your capacity, to increase your resources, your tools, um, because there is no one size fits all. Um, there is no one modality that works with everything, unfortunately, um, but fortunately. So um, I appreciate you both so much. I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to doing it again soon. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>